All right, let's get to it. Matthew chapter 20. If you have a Bible today, grab one, pull your Bible out. The very first book of the New Testament, about three quarters of the way through the scriptures. You can also grab one out of the pew rack. I'm also going to put some of the verses up on the screen today. We're in a little, I'll give you just some background information. We're in a little two-week stretch where I didn't plan anything. Every now and then, as I plan out, like, what are we going to be talking about on Sundays and what we're going to be preaching on, and I leave a little gap. And I do that on purpose because sometimes I just want to get to the week where I'm preaching and go, Lord, what do you want to say to me and to our church this week? Um, Not something from six months ago that I put on a calendar, but just right this week. And as we got closer and closer to these two weeks, I felt God saying, just get back to some words from Jesus. I I really never want our church to get too far away from those red letter words that came right off Jesus' lips. And we spent four wonderful weeks in the Psalms. Thank you, Pastor Paul and Cody and uh, Jesse for preaching through that series. It was great. We're going to spend five weeks going through the life and story of Jonah. That's going to be fun, exciting, challenging. Do not miss that journey. God will use that story in your life, I promise. But for these next two weeks, we're just going to look at two different stories, two different parables that Jesus tells. I think they're very, very appropriate for us, 21st century Jesus followers in America. And so Matthew chapter 20. Actually, we'll back up. We'll begin with the very last verse of chapter 19, and you'll see why as we get towards the end. Here we go. These are what Je- this is what Jesus says. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. All right, first of all, as we dive into this passage, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, or sometimes the Bible calls it the kingdom of God. This is how things are and how things will be when God is in control. That's the kingdom of, that's the kingdom of heaven. When God is in control, when God has his way, when things are the way God wants them to be, we call that God's rule and reign. He is king. His kingdom is present. And the Bible says this, the Bible says the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has infiltrated our world, has infiltrated the kingdoms of this world. And now what Jesus talks about, what he says is as his followers, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can experience the kingdom here and now. We can get glimpses of things being the way God longs for them to be right here and now. The way God longs for them to be in us in our thinking, and our feelings, and our attitudes, and our behaviors, in our world. We get a chance to see justice, and mercy, and kindness, and love. We get a chance to see things the way God wants them to be. And God says, I want to push that forward. I want to use my people to advance my will in this world. But we also get a chance to see that things in our world are not always the way God wants them to be. We live in this time where the kingdom has come, but it's not fully here yet. It's the already, but not yet of the kingdom. And so Jesus spends a lot of time here on earth talking about the kingdom of God, talking about the way God longs for things to be, giving us a vision for that. He also says we should pray for the kingdom, doesn't he? He says we should pray, thy God kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because in heaven, everything is the way God longs for it to be, right? Pray that someday, pray that someday, more and more, our earth will resemble heaven. And so Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven today. 
He starts our passage by saying, for the kingdom of heaven is like. Again, he's painting a picture. He's giving us a vision for God's will. He says, guys, gather around. Let me give you a vision for God's heart in the world. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. You see, Jesus is taking something that we don't fully understand, that we don't fully grasp, the way God wants things to be. We don't fully understand what that looks like, and he's going to explain it to us by talking about something that his disciples did understand. And and he uses a story that would have been very familiar to them. He starts off by saying there's this landowner, and he goes out early in the morning to hire workers to work in his vineyard. These workers would have been what were called day laborers. These are guys who did not have a steady job. They just hung out every day in the marketplace hoping to get hired that day for a job, hoping to get picked up for a project. And I don't know if you've seen this before, but I remember the first time I saw this in our world. We moved to California, and in California where we lived, in Ventura, if you went to the Home Depot, you could always find a group of guys just hanging outside the Home Depot, right out in front of the lumber yard, just a big posse of them there, and they would just be hanging out, and they'd be waiting for someone to come along and say, I could use you for the day. I'll hire you for the day. I'd like to hire you for this project. So we have, had, we have day laborers in our world, but they were very common in Jesus' day. And the Jewish work day was a 12-hour work day. It ran from 6 in the morning, 6 a.m., to 6 p.m. So early in the morning is probably about 5 o'clock. At 5 a.m., this vineyard owner gets up, goes off to the market to round up his workers for the day, to round up some workers to start at 6 a.m. And he wants them to help him with his grape harvest. And the grape harvest was a very unique harvest in the fact that you needed to pick your grapes very quickly. It was an expedient harvest. It needed to happen in a more timely way than, say, harvesting wheat or grain. Because as soon as the farmer determined that his grapes were ripe, that they were ready to be picked, they must be picked instantly because grapes would ripen right on the edge of the rainy season. And if the rain came before a farmer's harvest was picked, that farmer could lose his entire crop. And so when the vineyard owner shows up at the marketplace looking for workers, there is definitely a sense that time is of the essence. We've got to get moving. And friends, I'll suggest this to you. Simply by choosing this particular story, Jesus is communicating that there is an urgency to being a part of kingdom work. That there is an urgency to being one of his followers. The kingdom of heaven, he says, is like a landowner who hires some guys because he needs to get his grapes harvested ASAP. There is a tenor in and around this story that suggests we are on a timer. The clock is ticking. The countdown has begun. And kingdom workers must have an urgency about them. So maybe the first question that jumps out of this passage for us is simply this. Is there, is there urgency in you? Is there urgency for the kingdom work God is doing in and through your life? 
Do you have that urgency? Do you have that sense that time is of the essence? Or, if you're honest, have you gotten kind of laissez-faire about the whole thing? Have you gotten sort of laissez-faire about Jesus forming his character in your life? Have you gotten laissez-faire about bringing justice in this world and setting things right back the way God longs for them to be? Have you gotten laissez-faire about sharing the good news of abundant life and salvation and joy with people far from God? Is that consistent time with God in your life still a priority? Or has it been placed on the back burner? Are those deep Christian friendships still a priority on your schedule? Or are you in summer mode? Is, is using your gifts in ministry to have impact in the world for Jesus something that takes precedence on your calendar? Is there urgency to the most important parts of living in this world, to the most important mission that God has called you to? Or, or have you gotten laissez-faire? Are you procrastinating? So easy to procrastinate in this world, isn't there? There's so many things to just draw us away from the most important things. Just this week, one of our staff members, I won't say her name, but it, she's new and it rhymes with Mashley Smell. Um, she was procrastinating in the office when she was supposed to be working. She was procrastinating in this office. She, she got off by, on doing this, like, this face app thing, this app that she discovered where she could take pictures of people, specifically our staff people, put them into the app, and this app would sort of turn them, would like age them. It would show you what they would look like when they get older. Have you seen this? You've seen this app. Have you seen this, this little trick? And there's some examples of this. Um, speaking of procrastination, do you want to procrastinate the sermon for a minute and take a look at a couple of the pictures? And we don't have to. No, you want to. I do too. Um, Pastor Luke, um, what a nice-looking young guy. And uh, there he is. <laughs> I, 73. The question really is, will Luke have that long a hair still at that age? I don't know. Pastor Ted, what a handsome man. Jenny, are you ready for this? Prepare yourself. This is, this is your future right here. <laughs> I, I love you, my friend. I did not ask Ted permission to do that because I love him so much. And, and, and then, have you ever wondered... What will a man bun look like when you're like 78, you know, and your cool little hipster mustache? Like, how does that translate into like aging? Well, here it is. <laughs> it's my favorite. And, uh, and this might be my favorite of all. Pastor Paul, what a handsome guy, good friend of mine. Here's an older version. There's a wiser Pastor Paul. <laughs> that is terrible. And then Ashley, because she was really procrastinating a lot, she even did me. Do you guys want to see old me? I guess some people just age better than others, guys. I, you're welcome, honey. Um, but here's the point, friends. Don't miss the point. Do you have an urgency for the kingdom to come in and through your life? Or have you lost that? 
Have you lost that? Have, have other things moved that, not just to the back burner, but off the priority list altogether? Is there an urgency for Christ to continue to do the work in you that he longs and needs to do? Is there an urgency for you to be a part of advancing his mission and doing his work in this world? Are you a part of the kingdom mission, and are you a part of it with the urgency that Christ calls us to have? The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now, right away, as Jesus' disciples listen to this parable, this story, um, they know something that we might miss. This is an extraordinarily generous wage. A denarius was the day wage for a Roman soldier. And a Roman soldier typically made much more than just a common field laborer. So the idea here is that these workers, they just got hired. Not only did they get hired right away at the beginning of the day, that's a big win for a day laborer. They're just hoping to get hired. They get hired right at the beginning of the day for a full day, and now they're promised to get paid a denarius. They are pumped. They're very pleased and excited about what's happening here. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He's back to Home Depot, right? He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. Now, if, if the first hour of the day, right, if the first hour is 6 a.m., if that's when the day starts, then the third hour is 9 a.m. Very good. We're tracking very basic Elementary math. Joy Jenkins, I saw you got the answer right. Good job. Uh, so it's now it's 9 a.m., right? And the landowner, he's come back to the marketplace. He's looking for more workers. And just so you know, at this point in the story, Jesus is sort of right down the middle. This is a very normal story. This is how the disciples would expect this to play out. A landowner would typically go hire, hire an initial crew, go back, get them up and running, get them up and going, and then... If there was more work than anticipated or if things were moving slow, they would go back to the marketplace and hire a second crew to kind of come in and fill in the gaps. And that's what we see happening here. And in this case, since these guys are starting a little late, not right at the beginning, the landowner agrees to pay them what? Whatever is right. He says, I'll pay you whatever is right. He's suggesting that there's probably going to be some sort of prorated wage based on the fact that they're not working a full day. Then says, he went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. The sixth hour is noon. The ninth hour is three in the afternoon. And at this point, the story is starting to get weird. You would certainly hire a crew at 6 a.m. You'd fill out that crew at 9 a.m. Maybe, possibly, there's an off chance that you would hire a few more workers at noon. But to hire someone at the ninth hour, at three in the afternoon, was simply unheard of. And so now the story is getting strange, and the disciples are suddenly paying more close attention. They're sitting forward in their seats, and they're wondering, where is Jesus taking this? Where is he taking this story? Verse 6. About the eleventh hour, 5 o'clock, 5 p.m., work is to end at 6. About the 11th hour, he went out and found still others standing around. Now, pay attention, because Jesus is about to describe this group with a little more detail. 
You'll notice he's going to have a conversation with this group. And with the other groups, he just goes, hires them, sends them on their way. But with this group, there's a little bit more of an interchange, and that's intentional because Jesus wants us to notice some things. He's using the absolute abnormality of this story, the craziness of this story, to teach us something about how God longs for things to be in this world, about how, lo- how God longs for things to be different in them and in us. About the 11th hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. See, what Jesus is pointing out to us here is that these guys are the leftovers. They are the passed over, unwanted, rejected ones. People have been showing up to Home Depot all day long, but no one has picked them. You have to understand the scene. A giant group of day laborers gathered in the marketplace and landowners and and potential um, job like supervisors are coming and hiring, coming and hiring all day long throughout the day. And these guys are picked and these guys are chosen and these guys are recruited. And at the very end of the day, there's a group of guys that no one else wanted. You see, all of a sudden we start to understand that this is a story about status and hierarchy and superiority and about what makes you valuable in the kingdom of God. What makes you a chosen one? This is a story about who is more important and who is less important to our king. This is a story about who matters and who's picked when God is calling the shots. When God's values rule and reign in this world. You see, this is Jesus saying to his disciples, guys, listen up, because the way you've been taught to value and devalue people, the criteria this world has taught you to use when determining who matters and who doesn't, the motivation you've been using to fuel the kingdom work you do, the motivation you've been using to fuel the service that you've been providing for me and for God, that motivation is all wrong. He says, guys, where you find value is wrong, and thus What motivates you is wrong. It does not line up with God's heart. It is not in line with the gospel. It is not how things will be when when they are the way I long for them to be. And friends, let me just pause here for just a quick minute and say this. If you're here this morning and you've ever felt like one of these guys, passed over, rejected, unchosen, unpicked, unworthy, like you weren't smart enough or good enough or beautiful enough or valuable enough, productive enough. Hear these words from Jesus. Come work in my vineyard. I choose you. I pick you because you are mine and you matter to me. You have value. You may not have value in this world, but you have value to me. And now Jesus will press in on his disciples He'll press in on their values and their motives and he'll expose them where they're thinking wrongly even a little more. Verse 8. When evening came, 
The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on down the list to the first. Let's start at five and go all the way down the list to six. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. Pause. Let's stop and remember who Jesus is telling this story to. Because it really matters. We have to understand the context of this story in order, to stand, in order to understand fully the point Jesus is making. And the story comes right out of a very specific incident. And it's this incident where Jesus has a conversation with a rich young man. We know him as the rich young ruler. And this young rich ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, great teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. What must I do to have this life of fullness and richness and abundance forever and, and like to all eternity? What must I do? And he says, you know, because I've been doing the religion thing. I've been following all the rules. I've kept all the commandments. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, then there's just one thing left to do, right? This is Jesus at his finest. He says, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and follow me. And This is a rich guy. So he says, give up all your stuff. Sell all your stuff and follow me. And the text tells us the guy walks away sad, sad because he's not willing to give up and sacrifice that much to follow God. Just too much, too much to give up. I can follow rules, but I cannot give up my wealth. But here's the thing about that story. The disciples are sitting right there in the front row, listening to this interchange, watching this young guy interact with Jesus, watching him walk away sad and dejected, watching Jesus say, hey, just give up everything for me and follow me. And he says, I just can't do it. I can't give it all up. It's just too much. And so after this happens, the disciples have heard it all, and then Peter, speaking for the group like Peter likes to do, he jumps in and he says this to Jesus. Listen to this. This is chapter 19, verse 27. Peter answered him. Peter said to Jesus, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Like, he couldn't do it, but we've done it. Like, we gave it all up. Isn't there, there's got to be a prize or a reward or something for that, Jesus, right? Like, cool, huh? And so what does Jesus say? He says, yes, there certainly will be a reward for those who choose to follow me. But, but, Peter, if you really want to know the answer to your question, listen to this story. And then he starts to tell the story that we've been walking through. He says, for the kingdom of God is like a landowner who goes to the, you know, the marketplace to hire workers. He starts to tell this whole story, right? So now we're, getting down to the end. now we're getting down to the end of the story. Now we're getting to payment time. And here's the question. Who do the disciples think they are in this story? Which workers do they, th- do they think they are? Do they think they're the hired at 5 p.m., only worked for one hour, didn't really give up that much workers? Or do they think they're the guys who were there early at 5 a.m. just waiting and who were picketed and have been working all day? Who do they think they are? Yeah, they're the early guys. So when they listen to this story and Jesus says, well, the guys who were hired at 5 p.m., they got a denarius. The disciples are thinking, sweet. 
we know where this is going. Jesus is answering just the way we thought he would because everyone knows the system. Everyone knows that showcase number two is always better than showcase number one. And if showcase number one is a denarius, well then, showcase number two is probably going to be like a motorhome and a boat and a trip to the Bahamas and a new car. Like, so lay it on us, Jesus. Keep going. We can't wait to hear what those early workers' pay will be. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? See, what Jesus is doing here is he's reminding them of the amazingly generous deal they've been given. He's saying, wait, wait, wait. Remember back to 545 when I told you you were making a, a denarius today and you went skipping and hopping and singing and dancing into the field because you had felt like you'd been treated so generously. And now you're complaining? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Or are you envious because I am generous? The Greek there actually says that the literal translation is, or is your eye evil because I am good? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Or are you giving me the stink eye, right? And in the ancient world, the eye was considered to be the lamp of the body. It revealed what was happening deep in one's heart and soul. And what Jesus is saying here, he's saying this situation, this story, this parable I'm telling, te reveals that something is deeply wrong in your hearts, guys. That your values and your motives are all mixed up. Jesus is challenging the attitudes that have been deeply like festered and built into their hearts. It's the attitude we see in verse 12. You have made them equal to us? You have made them equal to us? You see, Jesus uses this story to say, oh, you guys think you're better than them. You think you're more valuable to God than they are. You think your value to God comes from what you do for God. Because you think you matter more. You think you're worth more because you've given more, because you've served more, because you've sacrificed for me. And so now you're worth more than them. You're better than them. On the religious hierarchy scale, you're topping the charts. You're part of the platinum club. And Jesus says, whoa, do you... Really think God and his kingdom work on a perform for perks system? Do you think that's how the kingdom works? Are you guys confused about this? You know, one of the coolest things I discovered in studying this passage was that there was actually another very popular parable making the rounds during Jesus' day. 
Jesus wasn't the only person telling parables. Rabbis all over Israel were telling parables. Parables were like just part of the culture. And one of the most popular, well-known parables was a parable very similar to the one Jesus tells. But in this version, the workers who came last, the very last workers, they worked so hard that they produced more than all the other workers put together, and they earned the payment they received in the end. That was the standard parable. That was the parable that people were used to hearing. That's the parable everyone else was telling. So, so Jesus comes and he begins to tell this parable, but then what does he do? He twists the ending. He flips it around on them and he's making a very pointed point. So what is it? What Jesus is saying to his disciples and to you and me is this. We can so easily forget the gospel and slip back into religion. You think you're following me, but all of a sudden you've slipped back into just doing religion. Slipped back into thinking that we and everyone else must earn God's favor. That our value is in what we do and how we perform and what we produce. That our standing before our king, that our value to him is about what we do for him. And friends, Jesus wants to shatter this way of thinking in his followers. And because he knows what it leads to. And he closes this story the same way he started it, with this very simple phrase, verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now, that is probably one of the most often stated, most misused passages of scripture in the history of the world even by me do you know when I when I use that scripture verse when other people are in front of me in the buffet line (laughs) the last will be first and the first will be last right when someone cut goes in front of me in traffic the last will be first the first will be last right like I use it to sort of point out my generosity and make this point that I'm somehow earning some some sort of points in heaven, that my heavenly property just got bigger or nicer or, you know, new hardwood floors or something. Like, that's how I sort of tend to use this verse. And that is the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying. Friends, we must not miss what he's saying here because it can be misconstrued so easily. He, he's not saying, put yourself last in this world so that you can be lifted up and exalted by God. So that your, your spirituality, right, can, can make, can, so that you can earn through humility a greater position and this greater reward. No, actually Jesus is speaking out against earning a reward. He's also not saying, you know, just go ahead and slack off spiritually because you'll get more, right? Because the first will be last, but the last will be first. He's not just saying the disciples are going to get less of a reward than, like, the other people who come in later who, who give up less, who... How much does everyone get in this, in this story? Is this, is this statement, so the last will be first and the first will be last, about how, who gets more and who gets less? No, because they all get the same. They all get the same. It's not about this. And so if they all get the same, if everyone gets the same reward, there's another question that emerges, and this is the question that I think Jesus is really trying to probe deeply in and get us to ask. The question underneath the question is then, well, then why should I work hard? If we're 
all getting the same, why should I put in a full day's labor if I can get the same payment for a half day or quarter day or one hour? If giving my whole life to serving God, if serving him with everything I have and am will not earn me more of a reward or a bigger and better house in heaven someday, then why should I do it? Because it's hard. And it can be tough. And friends, if you, like the disciples, are asking that question, then Jesus has got you right where he wants you. And he wants to say, if that's the thinking of your heart, then you don't understand the gospel. If that's the question of your heart, then you have been sucked back into religion. You have misunderstood what gives you value and what motivates you as a follower of Jesus. Let me ask you the question this way. What's driving your service? What is driving your life? What is driving the sacrifices you're making for the kingdom? What is, what is actually behind everything you do for God? What's the why behind why are you here at church this morning? Why are you putting money in the offering bags? Why do you give your time and energy to help hurting broken people? Why do you do things that are difficult and inconvenient? Why do you purposely step into to situations that are messy and full of struggle? Why? What's behind that? It's great that you do it, but what's the motivation? What's the heart behind it? Is it some reward you hope to get? Is it some approval from God you think that you're earning, that God is impressed, and he's going, whoa, yeah. Is it some position or some status in the afterlife that you think is waiting you, for you? If so, Jesus says you don't understand God's kingdom. You've missed the way the gospel works, and you are trapped in a pattern of doing religion. Friends, do you know why these guys are so worried about what these other people will get? Because they don't understand how much they have. They don't understand how much they have. You know what they're motivated by? They're motivated by saying, God, look at how much we're doing. Based on what we're doing, we can earn some stuff. It's performance for perks mentality. It's the more I do for you, God, the more you'll do for me. But God says, that's not the gospel. That's the opposite of the gospel. God says, I've done everything for you. You already have more than you can possibly fathom. Friends, if you had all the money in the world, all the money the world could offer, and then some friends of yours that worked a little less hard than you got a bonus from your boss, would it bug you? No! Because you're already fully satisfied in what you have. But if you felt like you had to earn what you were going to get, now you're tempted to compare with everyone else. And when you're tempted to compare your spirituality, your religiosity with the people around you, that's one indication that you're not doing the gospel, that you're doing religion. That you're on a performance for perks system, a system that is not a part of the kingdom of God. You see, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is this. You are valued and rewarded, not because of what you've done for God, but because of what he's done for you. The whole system is flipped. If you find yourself comparing and earning value through religious activity, through trying to be a good person, through doing churchy stuff, you're trapped in religion, and your motivation is all messed up. 
If you think your value is linked to your performance, then you don't understand the gospel. You see, the gospel says this. The gospel says you are valued more than you can possibly fathom by one who is greater than you'll ever imagine. You are so valued. You are worth so much. And so you don't go out and give your whole life in order to get. You you go out and give your whole life because you've already been given. That's the gospel. That's the difference between what we're doing here. That's the difference between following Jesus, the good news of Jesus, and religion. Follow these rules. Do enough good things so that God will accept you someday. Jesus says, absolutely not. Not of my followers. That will only lead to pride and depression. Pride when you think you're doing better than everybody around you. Man, I'm better than everyone around me. Man, I'm pretty good. I'm an awesome person. I'm a phenomenal Christian. Right? Spiritual arrogance. We see it all the time, right? Or, man, the people around me are so much better, and I didn't read my Bible, and I don't have that many foster kids, and uh, and, uh, I'm the worst. And God says, no, 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 no. Your value is not linked to any of that. You are value. Let me tell you, you know what your value is linked to? I love you so much that I sent my one and only son to die on a cross to give his life, to redeem your sins so that you could be with me forever. That's how valued you are. That's how worthy you are. Now let that drive your life. Let that change your life. Let that be the centerpiece that everything you do comes from. And so we gather, friends, as a church, as a people who are all in some way or another tempted to get back on the treadmill of religion, we gather to come to these tables to say, not today, Satan. That's a little sign in my office, by the way. My wife gave me this little sign that says, not today, Satan. Not today, Satan. You won't trick me into religion today, Satan, because the God of the universe sent his son, and I am more valued and loved and worthy than I can ever imagine. And that is going to drive me to give everything for the king. So as you come to the table this morning, ask yourself this question. Where in my life right now have I been tempted to get back on the treadmill of religion? Is there anything that I'm doing because I'm trying to earn the favor and love and acceptance of a God who's already fully accepted me? When that place comes to the surface, bring it to the table and let God remind you of who you really are. Someone who he loves dearly, not because of what you do, but because of what he's done. I'm gonna pray and the tables will be open. Come take the bread and the cup. Bring them back to your seat and then Make that declaration. This is who I am. Father, this morning, thank you for your gospel, for the good news. We long to not do religion, and yet it is so tempting for me, God, to do things in order to please you, to not fully understand how loved and valued and accepted I am. And God, I ask that you would shatter that in me and in us, that we would be a people that fully embrace the good news of how much you love us and how you've demonstrated that in your son. That is our prayer as a church. We long to be a people that reflects that in the world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.